how do we all get so doggone serious? If you're a regular listener of the Catalyst 360 podcast, you're likely a high performer, making the most of each day and every opportunity. Yet sometimes in the midst of doing so, we lose our playful self. We're good at work, at getting things done. Play? Ah, that's for later. Unfortunately, that later can continue to be pushed back indefinitely, and our lives turn into a treadmill of checklists and a closet full of trophies. That tendency does not have to continue, and today's guest, Dr. Beth Kernan, will help chart the course toward reclaiming our playful lives. Welcome to the Catalyst 360 podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brad Cooper of Catalyst Coaching 360, and today's guest is clinical psychologist and award-winning author, Dr. Beth Kernan. Drawing on mindfulness, neuroscience, positive psychology, cognitive behavioral therapy, and acceptance and commitment therapy, she helps individuals not only enhance their inner resources for resiliency and well-being, but also reclaim their sense of play. Her latest book is Dancing on the Tightrope, Transcending the Habits of Your Mind and Awakening to Your Fullest Life. Speaking of awakening to your fullest life, if you're a coach listening to this and you've not yet registered for the Rocky Mountain Coaching Retreat and Symposium up in Estes Park, Colorado this September, please don't wait any longer. It is no exaggeration to say this is the event of the year for health and wellness coaches. We have top-tier keynote speakers, including MBHWC Executive Director Leanne Webster this year. There's time to relax and get refreshed, incredible scenery, and a total investment that is probably 50 to 60% less than the cost of typical conferences and housing. All the details, including the six-month no-interest payment option, as well as group discounts, are available on our Institute website at catalystcoachinginstitute.com. And for the employers out there who are looking for ways to enhance your benefits program and provide more meaningful support for your employees' physical and mental health, Catalyst Coaching 360 might be exactly what you've been seeking. Best-in-class coaching you can integrate into any program or platform. Details at CatalystCoaching360.com or reach out to us anytime you'd like. Results at CatalystCoaching360.com. And now, it's time to rekindle our playful nature with Dr. Beth Curlin on the latest episode of the Catalyst 360 podcast. Dr. Curlin, thanks for joining us. We're talking play today, so hopefully we'll kind of have some fun with this. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for having me. The thing that drew me to you as I was reading some of your articles, just the idea, play is just a hard thing. And and that seems so contradictory. Like, what do you mean play is a hard thing? Like, why is play this pleasurable thing for so many of us, a lot of the high performers, especially that are listening, why do we struggle to make that a regular part of our lives? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that as kids, we innately mm. know how to play. And as we get older, we really lose connection with that. Mm. And, and part of that, I think, is you know, our adult responsibilities that we take on. I think that the stress that is in our world and in our lives and managing jobs, you know, career, family, whatever people are doing that, that, that there's a lot of, um, I see a lot of stress and anxiety in mm, certain yes. like the clients and the people that I work with. Um, and I think that's only become heightened, unfortunately, more in more recent years. And so here's the thing that's really interesting. And I love diving into this, um, understanding of our autonomic nervous system, because that really underlies play. Yeah, and so great place to start. If I can, let's go that route. Absolutely. That's, that's beautiful. A little bit to just give a framework. Cause I think this helps to understand 
why it's hard sometimes to get into that play play zone. Um, and I'll talk more about that in a sec. And and what things might help. And I'm sure we'll perfect. You know, yes, yes. There's, but part so we have this survival wiring that you know through millions of years of evolution helped our ancestors survive harsh conditions. Think about the saber tooth tigers and all of that. And these survival circuits are active a lot of time when we may or may not even be aware of it in our modern day lives. So we have this part of our brain and nervous system that is constantly scanning our environment for either cues of threat and danger or for cues of safety. And when we pick up cues of threat and danger, and again, this is under the surface of right. our conscious awareness. Not even, don't even know what's happening. Right. Um, happening all the time. Those cues of threat trigger these survival circuits. And so think about, and it goes in this hierarchy. So the, the first place that our bodies go is more of that fight flight response when we face some kind of a perceived threat. And that could be, you know, get stuck in traffic or trying to manage a career and then, you know, having small kids at home or whatever other, you know, um, facing, you know, all the stressors in our current Night. world now. Right. Um, so that circuit circuitry gets activated, sympathetic nervous system gets aroused, gets turned on. And our body is always trying to predict. And, and the brain is really a predictive machine. Yes. So what resources do I need to allocate in order to deal with this current situation? And if the brain perceives threat, then these resources, the sympathetic nervous system revs up, heart rate goes up, blood pressure may go up, stress chemicals get released into the body. We're preparing to deal with whatever that threat is. Um, and when that happens, we get a little more tunnel vision or sometimes it, we can get a little more scattered. Um, but often it's more of that narrow focused tunnel vision. And then if that doesn't help to solve the problem. Or if we're really dealing with something more overwhelming, we can go into that shutdown collapse mode. And so those are our two basic modes, if you will, of this survival circuitry. And so play really lives in a different place. And when, when our body is perceiving more cues of safety than of threat, then our social engagement system gets turned on. And this is our, you know, where more of our rest and digest happens. This is really where we feel a felt sense of safety and importantly, connection with others. So when these circuits are turned on and there are specific circuits very much mediated by this vagal nerve, um, it actually puts a, a little bit of a break on the sympathetic nervous system activation and we feel more calm we feel safe it allows us to be in connection and play is a really interesting blended state so you have a little bit of that sympathetic mobilization but you also have a lot of safety and calm that calm energy and so those two together when they're intermixed, we're in um, what Michael Allison, who's a, who's a coach, a high performance coach and polyvagal expert, he calls this the play zone. Okay. And I love that term. And so um, when we are 
feeling more safe. And when stress is not revving up our nervous system, that's when we can access play. That play is actually a physio, in, in some ways you can think of it as um, a physiological state, as well as more of a mental state of, of well-being, if you will. So, so going back to that question, why is it so hard for us to sometimes get into or access play is because if our, if our stress response is dialed up so much of the time, then we're not able to activate those circuits that bring on more of that sense of safety, connection, relaxation, and then a little bit of that energy where we can be playful. We can allow ourselves and to... Is, is some of that... Okay, so you said when you're feeling safe, in our world, obviously there's a lot of variables to this on where you live in your current situation, your home situation and all, but many folks reasonably safe in North America. Yeah. Are the cues then related ever to maybe time of day, uh, place? So I'm thinking, well, I'm thinking of myself, but I'm thinking of many friends and peers too that once it's like, I, I generally work till about 6 PM. So once six hits, it's easy for me to play. Susanna and I enjoy whatever, you know, going down to old town or, or whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. But before that, I don't like I, Oh no, it's work time. So I'm safe. I, I'm not feeling danger at work, but it's not six yet. So, Oh, I'm not free to play. And it's just this weird thing in my head that just doesn't make sense. Is there something about time and day or, or weekends? People maybe can play well on weekends, but, but not during the week. I I don't know. Is there anything there? So let me say, just to to clarify a little bit when I'm using safety, that is fairly loose. Sure. sure. Absolutely. I mean, of course, physical safety, but just more of that calm, energy where our nervous system can really relax. Yes, yes, yes. That's what I mean by that. So sometimes, you know, we could be at work and it's not that we're feeling a threat. Yeah, somebody's not going to hit us on the head. Right. In a real zone of, okay, I'm, you know, banging this workout. I'm, I'm focused on this task at hand. And so there, you know, we could, there could be a little bit of a drive there, which is not, you know, that, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that at all, but, um, but there can be, I mean, and that's the key of your research is if we're not integrating that play, if the work is overwhelming that, then there are physical and mental dangers involved. Right. Absolutely. If we tip, if we get stuck in our survival circuits, right. That's when we are more at risk for burnout or other kinds of, you know, psychological unwellness, right? right? Um, But it's normal to go in and out of these states all day long. So it's normal to have that sympathetic activation and sometimes to shut down a little bit more and sometimes to, you know, feel that calm. So going in and out of those states is not a problem. It's just when we get stuck in survival mode. And sometimes, and I can speak for myself being, I would say, wired definitely more that type A, anxious, kind of person that I know what it feels like to get stuck there. And um, 
And so, and, and kind of a side note, a graduate professor once said to me that we often teach people what we most need to learn ourselves. So yes, we, we had myself Kelly McGonigal on years uh, early on in the podcast. And she said, Brad, most research begins as me search. And I always love that. Yeah. And, and just to clarify too, I, to the listeners, I don't do any research. Uh, I take in research. You, you compile it into your books. Exactly. Yes. But more clinical, my clinical experience and my lived experience as you're, well. You're the meta meta analysis person. Um, yes. Okay. So you, you've written about reclaiming our playful selves. Can you explain, first of all, why playfulness is so essential for our well-being and how it can be positively impacting not just our personal lives, but our professional lives also? Sure. Yeah. So again, going back for a minute to that understanding the physiology mm-hmm. of play, that when our nervous system is in a more relaxed, restful place, and again, there, we, we need to have a little bit of energy there for play too. So we're not totally chilled out, you know, just lying right. on the beach. Right? I mean, we can be. <laughs> Occasionally. Yeah. That's right. um, but uh, when our nervous system is, has more of that ventral vagal energy that 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 calm energy right that turning the brakes on the putting the brakes on the stress response our body is in a state of rest and recovery and growth and so from a health perspective that's a really important place to be and to to be able to find places during our day during our week where our physiology uh, physiology can shift into that state so that our body has a chance to be in rest, growth, recovery. Um, you know, just as a side note, and I know I'm going off. We love going off. Rabbit trails are awesome. We love, we should change this to the rabbit trail podcast. Yeah. But a little stream of consciousness here. Um, I used to, for many years, I trained pretty heavily for triathlon, doing triathlons. Um, and it was definitely a form of play for me, but I tended to overtrain. And so I pushed my body too hard. And the best thing my coach, you know, ever said was you've got to give your body rest and really learning how to do that was hard for me. Um, but that rest and recovery is so vital to our body being able to function well. And so this idea of. Wait, let's stay on that rabbit trail for a second, because I think especially for many of our listeners, this is, this could be an intriguing conversation. So I enjoy triathlons as well. I've done 11 Ironmans. We won the race across America bike race five, six years ago. Um, So I'm, I'm, you and I are looking in the mirror here, like same problem, same issue. And had you asked me, I'm not training that seriously right now, but had you asked me in the midst of that, is that play? I would say, oh yeah, yeah, that's my play. But was it really, or was it a work that I wasn't paid for? And so it was easier to categorize it as play. But the reality is it was more, it was work. What are your thoughts on that? Because I think that happens with a lot of high performers where we pick hobbies that require hyper-discipline, hyper-focus, changing our lives in these ways, like dialed in. Maybe that's good, but I'm, I don't know. Maybe it's 
not? Maybe it's just extending our workday. So I think that's a great question. And I think that there's a real interesting edge there that's really important to try to pay attention to. And again, some of that goes back to really listening to the body and listening to the autonomic nervous system and the messages that we're getting. And so I can feel for myself now, and of course I've worked at this, but when I'm in more of a driven state, Mm -hmm. you know, and and I love to focus on things, whether it was training for (laughs) writing writing your books. books. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But there's a place where it tips over into um, something where I lose lose that more calm energy and it really becomes more clenched and constricted, Mm. pushing and driving and that. And and there's that edge, whether it's work or triathlons or even right that, that something that can be play like training for a sport can really turn into tapping into keeping our stress response engaged too long. And for me, it came out physically. I developed this um, really bad eczema and kind of some unexplained, you know, fatigue and other symptoms. My body was at points, you know, just screaming to me saying, Hey, you got to listen. So hopefully we catch that earlier on and, and just be able to have daily ways of listening to our bodies and knowing our nervous systems and, and catching that edge, you know, am I in survival mode or am I in thriving mode? Because it, it has a very different feel to it. Okay. So let me ask you this, what two, two options here. So we had Marco Altini who created the HRV for training app talking about HRV. And from that, the basic concept was that's a great recorder of all your life stressors. So yes, it captures your workouts, but it also captures your travel, your lack of sleep, your alcohol intake, your personal stressors, your family stress, et cetera. So question A, have you integrated something like that in with clients or yourself or others, or is this a rabbit trail that you haven't yet explored? And then I have a second follow-up question to that. that doesn't involve HRV. So I personally have a heart math um, monitor mm-hmm. both on my computer and my phone. I have worked with clients sometimes using biofeedback. I love what I love about biofeedback is that within a few minutes, people can see on the screen that even just changing their breathing. Yes. It's a visual representation. It changes what's happening in the body, right? right? So you can see right on the screen, I've just shifted from more of a survival mode to something that invites more thriving. And so I find it helpful to play with that. I personally, and again, I have introduced that to some clients as well. Um, I don't use it regularly at this point for myself, but I do find it helpful. All right. The follow-up question is completely unrelated to that. So it shouldn't be called a follow-up should be called a secondary rabbit trail or something. I used to, we have three kids, they're all married now. And and I used to encourage them to think about their dating lives in the context of how was that influencing other aspects of their life? So they, they would start dating someone. Okay. How does that influence your sleep, your energy levels, your exercise, your eating, your schoolwork, et cetera, et cetera. If those things are improving, generally, <laughs> there's going to be some exceptions, generally, 
that's probably a really awesome relationship. If those mm-hmm. things are being depleted, if those things are drawing down, that's probably not a very positive relationship. Do you see a way to take that concept and apply it to our, well, our play conversation here with Ironmans or triathlons or whatever else, but to analyze play and say, if, if your choice of play is improving relationship, sleep, professional outcomes, et cetera, et cetera, that's probably really play. If your play is making you late for work, is affecting your relationships, is, you know, go down the list, then maybe that's not play. I, am I totally making this up? Is there something to this? What, what are your just off the top of your head? No, I, I think that absolutely. Because again, it goes back to how are we allocating our resources? And that starts in the body, but that also extends, you know, then into what it looks like in these different areas of our life. So if we are spending too much energy in that sympathetic nervous system mode, that stress mode, we are depleting ourselves Mm. and that will show up. In our in our relationships or in our at our work or things like that, there there are signals and signs of that. Um, And if we are feeling more energized by doing this activity, that's also going to show up. So going back to that, like how is play helpful? One, you know, it, it our physiology in that state does more growth and recovery and that kind of thing, but also it brings us into connection with people. Yes. Um, it, whether whether we're playing with others or even just playing individually, but it, if I am being energized by what I'm doing, mm-hmm. I'm going to be Everything more else. Yep. playful and, and positive and fun to be around with and what I bring into my relationships. And similarly, in terms of the, the energy that I might have to bring into work, or into other things. So I think that it has a trickle down effect in a lot of areas that, that can be uh, really helpful. And I think also um, at play can help us be more resilient. So when we face those challenges, if we have had ways of resetting and restoring and letting our nervous system be in this more playful state, when we do hit those challenges, it can be a little bit easier to, you know, have the energy to, to manage. Right. Right. You've got more to give. All right. As adults, I'm going to use the word many, maybe it's most, many of us, most of us have lost touch with that playful nature. What are some of the practical steps? We love practical stuff on this show. What are some of the practical steps or exercises that people can do to cultivate the mindset piece? So not necessarily, oh, well, you buy a gardening tool and you walk outside, but what just the mindset of play, bringing that into our lives more consistently. Yeah. So a couple of different directions my mind is going here. Um, one, one thing, and, and I just, I want to come back to this question, but slight segue sure. of just even differentiating that play from what tips into something else, right? Is being able to drop into the body. And so maybe some listeners have had experience with meditation or Mm -hmm. things like that, but it can be really simple. And even if you were to um, 
think about, let's, I don't know if you're still doing triathlons now or not, but um, if, if you were to say, be in the middle of training and kind of think about, you know, wake up, think about your day ahead and okay, I'm going to go to the pool and I'm going to, mm-hmm. you know, hang out so many laps and then I'm going to go for a run or whatever. And, and you're just imagining that and playing that out in your mind and then really noticing what's happening in your body. <laughs> are you, are you interesting. up? Are you constricting? Yes. Is there a little bit of breath holding? Is there, is there an openness? Is there a little flutter of excitement? Is there a feeling of ease in the body, right? Or less pressure in the chest? Um, some of these little subtle cues can be really helpful in terms of guiding us towards what energizes us and what depletes us. So I guess going back to the, you know, the, the question of what things can we do on a practical level to move towards play, one is just beginning to pay attention to these little signs and, and signals in our body and our nervous system that can really guide us and let us know, oh yeah. Oh, mm. I just when I think about doing this thing, oh, there's like a lightness. There's oh, I just felt, you know, some excitement there. Well, that's really helpful information. Um, so another thing. Wait, let's let's pause on that because that word you just said, a lightness, it it might be a lightness or it might be an energizer, right? Like so it's not you joked about the beach earlier. It, play is not chill always by requirement. Play, that that is one aspect of chill. Chill also might be, oh, I'm going to that master swim group, and today's the day I'm going to try to move up a lane or whatever it might be. That also it, it's the positivity of it. Either this will be relaxing, positive, or this will be exciting, positive, or energizing. Pot. Am, am I hearing that correctly? Yes. Yeah. And and it it can take different forms on a continuum, let's say. Right. So if you're in a high performance tennis match, there's going to be a lot of mobilized energy and focus Mm -hmm. and drive there. Mm -hmm. But ideally, there is some access to this, you know, again, I'm using this term ventral vagal energy, but the part of our vagus nerve that innervates our organs and our heart and Mm -hmm. so forth. Um, that when we have access to that energy, there's there's a little bit of calm groundedness there uh, that allows us to really um, not lose ourselves in the stress response, if that makes sense. So, so play can have lots of different levels of mobilized energy from lower to higher, okay. I guess I would. Okay, good, good. And then I interrupted you. I'm sorry, where were you going? So you were asking other practical ways yeah. for thinking about cultivating a playful, I guess I would call it even a playful mindset. Um, that we have the actual verb of play, and then we have the mindset of playfulness too, that we can just bring qualities of playfulness into our day. But here's a, a, a fun exercise that I recently led people uh, through in a workshop. But you could take a moment, or listeners now could even, if they want, able to close their eyes and to take take themselves back to a moment in childhood when you were playing to think about something that you love to do and to really visualize yourself playing as a kid and and to be curious about what the nature of that 
play was. And it can take so many different forms that um, for some people, it may be more physical, you know, running around. For other people, it might be inventing something or building something. Or some people, it might be, you know, more solitude, make-believe play, others bringing into connection with others. But really going back into your youth and thinking about what are those things that Mm. you loved to do as a kid. And then I like to encourage people to write it down, make a list of as many things as you can think of that you love to do that really energized you, that brought delight as a as a younger person and begin to look for themes so start to look for like for me um i had a number of forms of play but i say one of my big ones was um imaginative play i loved using my imagination to create things and that creativity was so important to me as a kid and that is what i now bring in and find so energizing in my life when I can tap into and bring creativity into different areas of my work. So to really think about what was it that energized you as a kid? And and then how do I take some a small action step that would translate that into my current life? So even something silly, but fun, like um, my husband. So he he was kind of just like a real builder and inventor as a kid. Um, but during the pandemic, he really discovered this idea of creative cooking, you know, of inventing. Oh, you benefited from that one, huh? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I hope my wife doesn't listen to this episode. I, I don't want her getting any ideas. <laughs> a lot of years, but, but I'm sure benefiting now, yeah. Um, but, but he loves being creative in the kitchen. And just inventing new things and trying new things. And um, and, and so in some way, I would say, yeah, you know, that is a form of play. Uh, so, so how do we translate whatever we love to do, the things that energize us? And, and maybe it's, you know, a, a doing a craft project or maybe it's joining an organized sports team. But it certainly doesn't have to be that formal. You know, it could just be finding small ways of bringing a little bit of, you know, the, again, this quality of whatever people find energizing or, or things they love to do into their adult lives. Okay. So love how you phrase that, bringing it into your adult life. I, I, I think I make the mistake of thinking, and maybe it's a guy thing. I don't know. Play is this category. Work is this category. Volunteering is this category. Exercise is this category. I'm starting to think the categories don't help. Like, let's just mix them all together. The more I can make exercise, play, and volunteering be something that really is something I enjoy. And, like, is there an element of that with your play discussions and writing of let's let's stop putting play over here on the shelf that I go get it when I have a little time. And instead, let's build play into our work, our volunteering, our cooking, our exercise, et cetera. So is there some element of that? Am I hearing that? I think that's wonderful. I think that's wonderful to be able if we can find ways of doing that and even just making it a little more intentional. Right. So again, it starts with 
some sense of feeling sort of calm, safe, connected enough to allow for that to happen. And when our nervous system is in that state, we have access to play, but we also, and also I should say, because I think this goes so hand in hand, um, we have access to exploration and creativity and learning and you know, all of these things that we don't have access to when, when you're being chased by a tiger, the only thing you're thinking is I got to get out of here. Right. But when we can access that nervous system that is, is in a more calm connected state and then that playful energy to it, um, there is, it's like a treasure chest opens. I I see it. And all of these, inner qualities that we all have, we all have access to, but they can get lost when we're stuck in those survival circuits, suddenly become available. And so we can bring creativity into our work. Um, I'm thinking of, gosh, just this high school teacher um, that of my daughter's years ago. And what a wonderful teacher in the way that he brought creativity into the classroom mm. and hey, it was play for them. But it was learning, but it was it was just so wonderful. And he he was clearly connected with his own playful self in order to bring that kind of creativity into his workplace. And so when we're tapped into that playful mindset, then there are ways that we can think outside of the box at work. We have access to greater problem solving when we're not in the throes of our survival circuits, we can really, it's, it's that thriving. Um, and interestingly, Barbara Fredrickson, who is um, a, a researcher and uh, wrote a wonderful, she wrote many wonderful books, but a book called Positivity. She talks about this broaden and build theory and this idea that short-term um, more of what we think of as our negative emotions played a role in really, um, you know, helping us narrow our vision to to escape whatever dangers we had to. But um, positive emotions or this positivity also had survival value, but it was more long term that when we weren't being chased by that tiger and we were feeling, you know, more sense of safety, that's when we could explore. That's when we could go out and and learn and create and do things. And so, again, these these thriving circuits can really apply to and we can kind of bring this energy into all different areas of our life, certainly relationships um, and just looking for. And I'm a big believer in looking for small moments, mm. um, not just the the, the bigger right. one. And so um, just little, little ways that we can be playful in, you know, at work, in our relationships, in our personal lives. Yeah. Tuning in, tuning into those. Um, uh, Let's, let's go down this path. We've kind of touched on this one already, but playfulness, it's often associated with the, the leisure activities, the hobbies, that kind of stuff. How can we incorporate it into work? You've mentioned how playfulness can enhance creativity. You've talked about how it can give us more satisfaction, more energy, more engagement, better relationships at work. Are there ways that we can 
purposefully, those are the outcomes. Are there ways that we can more purposely bring that play into our work to achieve those outcomes? So I think a couple ways that I would answer that. One is we can certainly cultivate or, you know, try to cultivate this playful mindset so that when we're at work, we have more access to these inner resources. Okay. Bigger toolbox. Yeah. Problem solving, all of those kinds of things. Um, I think that there's a larger level answer here in terms of from the top down or from like organizations Mm. creating environments in which there's a real culture of well-being. And so I've seen some companies do this really well and others not so much. Yes, we have to. <laughs> um, even physical spaces in the workplace where people can, you know, maybe a little lounge that's really inviting where people can go and connect and relax and, and, and that gives the message, hey, it's OK to take a break and have some downtime. Um, I know a lot of companies have done these kinds of um, challenges, various sometimes fitness challenges or other sure kinds of challenges where that is bringing an element of play into the workplace. So that's coming from top down from the higher up, right? Inviting the people in the workplace to, to play in some ways. And I think that's wonderful because it brings people into connection in a different kind of a way than, you know, if you're maybe just have your serious hat on working on a project or that kind of thing. Um, I think, again, you, you know, creating this culture of well-being at work, um, I've seen companies have retreats or softball games, you know, to try to get people outside of the workplace a little bit and in, invite in an element of fun. And when that happens, people can then bring more of that playful energy back into the workplace. So I think it feeds in a helpful way. Um but that is more dependent in some respects on, you know, organizations. But here's, you know, even a simple thing like, and maybe this is a silly idea, but kind of popped into my head. We'll take it. Uh, but even, you know, at a workplace, a uh, bunch of colleagues getting a big whiteboard and using that whiteboard to maybe, um, you know, write down things that you really appreciate about the other, about another coworker. And or, you know, here's my favorite joke of the week. I don't know. <laughs> Make it playful. Like, how would that change? Our, our kids don't like my jokes, Beth. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, trying to think about, right, a little bit of playful energy or, or different kind of energy than we're maybe used to in the workplace to create a different tone. To open that up. And a different message. Yeah. 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 Okay, good. Uh, so, so. Let's go broader here. Society tends to be all about productivity, seriousness. You know, you got to have that first. How how do we challenge that mindset? How do we create a culture? You've talked about a little bit of you know a work setting, but how do we create that on a collective level that rewards isn't the right word, but brings out more playfulness of, of what we're doing? So I think. It starts maybe in one respect by challenging a little bit of what I would call, for lack of a better way of saying this, the old old school mentality. Yeah. 
Because I, I feel like that there is, there are, there are these messages in our culture, at least as I've grown up, to push really hard. You know, um, I see this in terms of some of the hours that people, yeah, no doubt, kind of jobs that's expected. Right. People are just supposed to be putting in 80 hour work mm-hmm. weeks. Right. So um, I see this. Um, my son played a lot of sports in high school. And, you know, I can even see the travel teams, different coaches, different messages about, you know, is this, are we really talking about work? Or are we talking about play? Exactly. And over. Um, but I think on a personal level, also thinking, and I speak for myself, because there's that sense like, got to, you know, a lot of my earlier life, and I'm, I'm trying to, to really move away from this, uh, got to push myself, got to do more, got to achieve, got to go through school, get that good grade to go on to the next thing, to get on to the next. So there's this mentality that all of this driving and striving is where it's at. And that when we, again, get stuck in that mode, we forget that there's this whole thriving mode that we don't have access to when we're, when we're too deep in that. Right. And, and just to, to know that um, having that balance, creating more play and more opportunities for reset allows us to be more productive. Ultimately, I believe allows us to, to be more motivated. I mean, in the workplace, we certainly know not so much research that I'm aware of on play, but certainly on stress that, you know, stress affects productivity, stress affects uh, sick time. Absolutely. And motivation, all those kinds of things. So so really ch- shifting the mentality to, to understand that having more play really allows us to then bring more energy into these other areas of our life as well. Okay. So I heard you say something along the lines of we, sh- we, we need to, we should, we we need we need to shift our mindset from work 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 to the value of play. We're I love that. How <laughs> like that's my struggle is is okay. I and probably a large percent of people listening are like I'm on board. Like I'm totally I I like this idea, but I can't shut it off. I feel like I should be working. So. I'm a big believer. Like I said, I'm going to come back to this little moments and little minutes in the day. Um, And so being able to even look for, so rather than thinking maybe bigger, oh my gosh, I got to like really shut things off and chunk out this big time for play, that kind of thing. Um, One of my favorite things to do when I'm in a playful mood and I have to kind of remember to do this, but even something like, doing the dishes and just putting on my, you know, Alexa sure. play yeah, yeah. Favorite and jamming out. And I love oh, to dance. It's beautiful. That's I perfect. love to dance. And so, uh, you know, dancing around the kitchen for a few minutes while I'm washing the dishes or putting the dishes away, like that is so uplifting when I do something like yes. that. And it only takes a, a few minutes. Um, there was, it was my husband and my anniversary the other day. And um, we were standing in the kitchen. It was just a fun, spontaneous moment that, you know, wasn't planned at all. But um, just like Alexa, play our, you know, play our wedding song. Uh-huh. And we just 
I love that. Three minutes, but it was so joyful in that. Um, Or even, um, I'm just trying to think of other little personal examples. I, I was going for a run the other day and it started to rain and I was right at my car and I, you know, sort of typically maybe say, okay, good. I'm, I just got, got, got to here just in time. I'm going, but I was like, heck no, I, I'm <laughs> running the rain. And I'm going to, you know, I just wrapped my phone up because I was playing, you know, really fun music and just made sure it wasn't getting wet and, and just like kept going. And, and so it just, but really allowed myself to just get wet, like to really get soaked and to just have fun in that moment. Right. So there's, we have these little opportunities in the course of our day um, for just taking even some of our mundane routines Mm. and making them more playful. And here's a really, maybe this particularly silly example, but I think changing things up, sometimes we do the same thing the same way over and over again in so many parts of our life. Oh yeah. Once in a while, I'll I'll be playful and like, well, I'm brushing my teeth, you know, like, like stand on one foot and see how long I can balance or something. Just um, doing the chores around the house and all my kids and I used to do this. So this was a fun one when when they were little trying to get them to, you know, cooperate or whatever. Let's set the clock, try to beat the clock, you know, and how fast can we get? (laughs) I I did that the other week from I was just by myself and I'm like, I will take a game out of this because otherwise it's a little dull, you know. Um, so, so little moments of bringing playfulness into our day don't take a lot of time, but they can really shift our energy. So much value to what you said. There's so much in there. We, we just did an episode, I don't know, a month and a half ago or so about finding or bringing in the joy into that, whatever, that work, that volunteer, that setting, that, you know, home chores, that kind of stuff. I, I was thinking about your, the title of your latest book, Dancing on the Tightrope. There's so much to that phrase because you're mm-hmm. talking about it's the little moments. It's it's a tightrope, folks. It's not easy. You've, you've got to be tuned in. You've got to, you know, oh, I'm, I'm falling a little bit more towards the work thing here. Let me not fall off the edge. Let's get back here on the... So love that title, in the context of what we're talking about right now, like that is so powerful. I actually got the the idea for that title in watching a um, performance of the, uh, I forget the name of the group, but they're amazing. And they do all kinds of acrobatic things and, you know, uh, amazing things on this tightrope that I was just watching. And I love dance and, and it's like, and, and life can feel like walking on a tightrope. Oh, so much. And, and so, how do we, yeah, how do we find that playfulness? Um, and well, the book sort of goes into a lot of other things. I'm looking at our mental habits that we can get caught in and and uh, practical tools for really working through those. But great title, great title. And I was laughing at your your timing thing. We we have family in in Arkansas and we live in Colorado. And so for 29 years, we did two drives each way to and from Little Rock. And, and one of the years we decided to do, and you'll appreciate this as a triathlete, transition times. So instead of stopping at the gas station and the subway sandwich place and that kind of stuff and just being like, okay, we'll do it. I was like, all right, kids, this year, 
Let's see what we can have for our total transition times for the whole trip. And they were into it. They are like, I remember we stopped. They still joke about it now. They're all in their late 20s. And, and they would be like, Subway sandwich. Okay, Josh, you go to the bathroom first. I'll order for us. And then Danielle, you wait in line and I'll go to the bathroom while we... And they come back to the car and they're like, all right, dad, how long was that? And I mean, it was just the funniest thing. And yet it also got us to Little Rock an hour and a half earlier because you're doing every stop in six minutes instead of 27 minutes. So anyway, it, it, the fun can that. also create some great value out of that. I love that. So let's shift course just a little bit. Share with us the most significant findings or insights from, from what you've looked at on mindfulness and resilience and how they can be applied to everyday life. My PhD work was in mental toughness, which is a close cousin of resilience. I, I just love to hear some of the things that you're seeing play out. People hear so much about mindfulness. Resilience was probably the word of the year two years ago. Everybody used it in every single sentence they had. But where are you seeing the biggest value related to one or both of those terms? Mm, wow, that's that's a bit of a, a load. Of yeah, I gave you about four hours worth of material there. <laughs> Um, I'll try to pick out a few things in response to that. So I think cultivating mindfulness, it, I've seen in my own personal life and with the clients and patients who I work with, it can be really transformative. Mm, that's a big word. And, uh, it, because one of the things that this, this quality of mindfulness helps us do is to see the things that are gripping us, the th the, to, to notice the, the, um, the thoughts and sometimes even the emotions that we can get hijacked in from a different place. Right? We're, we're, when we cultivate this mindful awareness, we are, it's like taking a half step back so we can see what's arising from a different vantage point. I actually, my, I have a new book coming out uh, early 2024, talks all about shifting vantage points. And there's a lot of like underlying mindfulness in this, but this idea that um, when we're caught in the grips of our thoughts, that we, that these things we say to ourselves, you know, all mm -hmm. the time, mm -hmm. um, we believe our thoughts to be true. And so many of them are, are not, yes. especially our critical thoughts yes. or, you know, these kinds of things we tell ourselves. And we can also get caught in our emotions, uh, sometimes hijacked by them, overwhelmed by, you know, anger or frustration or whatever that might be. Um, and mindfulness allows us to, to be able to just step back and see what's arising so that we can navigate a little more clearly. And, and the, the metaphor that I love to use and the tool that I kind of this foundational tool I try to give everybody is what I call the tool of the flashlight. So imagine if you were walking around in a pitch black room and you're trying to get from point A to point B, you might be, you know, there's furniture, there's obstacles in the room. You'd be bumping over, you know, bumping into things, tripping over things, It'd be kind of challenging. Somebody hands you a flashlight suddenly the room is illuminated. Those obstacles are still there. They don't go away, mm. but you navigate with greater ease. And so when we have that mindful awareness, we're able to see like, oh, wow, I am, example, um, gosh, during the pandemic, 
there was a lot of stress and anxiety for all of us. And for myself, I would often wake up in the middle of the night, you know, with a lot of anxiety. Um, and, and just being able to then notice the times when, instead of being just caught in it, when I could step back as the mindful witness and recognize like, oh, wow, here's my mind bringing me to all of these what if scenarios. And they, none of them are actually happening right now. I'm actually, oh, I'm in the safety of my bed and, and my husband at the time, he he was a frontline worker, so he was dealing with some patients with, you know, going into working with patients who had COVID or whatever. So there's a lot of fear sure. that I had. Yeah. But being able to just catch myself and notice, oh, this is my mind, you know, running way ahead, trying to prepare me for worst case scenarios, which aren't actually here right now, then open the door for me for more a little more self-compassion, a little more self-soothing. And it it wasn't that the fear necessarily went away, but it didn't grip me as much. And then it, I was able to access other resources to, you know, soothe and comfort and calm my nervous system. So that I think is just one little example of the way that mindfulness that gives us some choice that when we see what's arising and the way that we, our minds can add to our suffering. We often have difficult experiences, but our minds can attach a narrative, which make those experiences more challenging. Mm, well said. You know, yes, I, yes, yes, yes. You know, okay, I didn't do well at something at work or whatever now, but the narrative is, okay, I'm a failure. I'm mm. so stupid. I can't believe I did the that. toilet bowl going down the drain at that point. Yeah, but and, and it's noticing that, right? So if we can notice that, oh, whoa, yeah, this was a really upsetting moment. And here's all the things that I'm telling myself that aren't actually really true. If I take a look at it, it's distorted. It's not, okay, that loosens the grip. Now I have a little more choice for how, okay, how do I go forward and meet this challenge? Uh, whatever. Yeah, yeah, I like yeah. that. I like that. And then on the resilience side, is is the mindfulness setting up the resilience, or is there are there a couple other things on that front that you think would be helpful to bring out? So I think mindfulness definitely can is a benefit. Help. benefit. Yep. Um, I also think other tools. So another of my favorite tool, I, I you know try to think about. I, my mind thinks in very concrete pictures and images and so forth. And I find that just in terms of trying to teach people practical ways to bring yeah. this into that. So another practical tool that I really love is the tool of the magnifying glass. Hmm. And so this idea that one of our mental habits that we can get caught in is, is Rick Hansen talks about our minds are like Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon. <laughs> we hold on to all the negative stuff much more easily than we do to the positive 100%. stuff. And, and there's evolutionary reasons for that. And it, you know, made sense for our ancestors. Um, and so, you know, I, I talk about it as we have this Velcro problem and the antidote, as I like to share with people is this idea of remembering to carry a magnifying glass with us as we go through our day, because often there are these little moments that, we that go unnoticed 
or that slip away really quickly, that if we can magnify them, they can help us cultivate some positive emotions that are that are here. You know, so it might be something like um, gratitude, even just sitting in the morning, you know, having a good cup of coffee or tea and just taking a moment to really savor that and to bring the magnifying glass to the expand. Okay. Ah, oh, this is just like, okay, three minutes right now. This, t- this is great, you know, and I really appreciate whatever it took to get this to my doorstep, you know, and all the people who went behind growing these coffee beans right. or whatever it is, right? just a moment of gratitude. Um, but it might be, you know, in an interaction, um, rushing out the door in the morning versus just lingering in that hug with the loved one for, for an extra 30 seconds and, and magnifying that and really taking that in as a felt experience because there's so many of these little opportunities, you know, even at the grocery store, just a warm exchange with the person, you know, checking yes. out your group. Takes no more time. Smile, a little interchange. Um, that those things can go a long way in terms of resilience. I think yeah. they, they add to our reserves, they can lift us up. And then when we do hit those challenges, we have something to draw from. We're not starting from the bottom there. Right. 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 All right. Last one. I want to flip the mirror a little bit here. In what ways you're the play expert, what ways are you integrating play into your life and have those habits or strategies changed over the years? So interesting. In some ways, I would say they've changed a bit to take in different forms. So I have to share a funny thing. When I was thinking back um, to the things that I love to do as a kid, one of the things that I have two siblings and we used to make up all of these games, but one of our favorite games, my, one of my favorite games was radio show um, that we would pretend that we were on a radio show and we would record it or whatever. So I have to tell you, being on this podcast is a little bit like just. We're wonderful. reliving that childhood. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so, you know, when um, I had my play as a kid and again, a lot of imaginative play and things like that, Um, I would say when my kids, when I had my kids, I have two children who are now young adults, but that was such a rich opportunity for me to reclaim my playful self when they were young, because I loved, you know, those moments of getting down on the floor with them and just being silly and being, you know, and, and I will say this, I think most people who know me professionally probably think of me as a pretty serious person. There are you know, some people in my lives, my kids being one of them, um, you know, that and, and obviously my husband and other people who are close to me who who really get to see more of this playful, you know, side come out. But um, but I think so. So during the time I was raising my kids, that was a wonderful opportunity for me to reconnect with play. And then interestingly, when my daughter left for college, um I had the floodgates opened for me on my creativity Mm. because I suddenly had more time. Mm -hmm. And that was when kind of long story about how the book came about, but I wrote my first book. Mm, Interesting. Writing is definitely a form of play. Not, not so much the book editing part, 
not that. But the actual writing um, is really playful. So for me, when I connect with my creativity, that's play for me. Um, There's something that I do that is really fun called this gateless writing method. And um, there, it, it just creates a really safe, comfortable environment for, for writers to, um, you, you get a prompt and then you, you write and you share with each other. And it's, that is absolute play when I, you know, and I'm doing this now, like once a week. Um, so that, that's playtime for me. Um and I, and I think even just, you know, doing um, I did a workshop recently on reclaiming your playful self. So like that was play. Mm. I try to bring as much of, of this sort of fun, creative stuff into my work life because it really feels like, you know, there there are times when I feel like, oh, my God, I'm like a kid at a playground here. Um, that doesn't that, that's not always how my life looks and feels for sure. But but I feel like in my adult life and more recently, some of these creative endeavors are ways that I am able to incorporate playfulness. I love that. In- uh, and, and the incorporating piece, you're, we talked about this earlier in the, in the discussion, you're bringing it in, you're noticing it, you're mindful of it, you're grateful for it. It's all these tightrope dances that you're able to integrate into the life that the rest of us are living without noticing those things, without integrating without tuning into without being grateful so i think that's fantastic that's perfect so yeah just sometimes that I, I think really helpful to bring intention that's the word what what we're doing what we want to bring into the day i'm a big believer in mental rehearsal and visualizing things and even at the beginning of the day and i thinking about okay how what would that look like if I brought a little more play into my day? How could I do that? Because if we can rehearse it in advance, it then becomes easier for us to find our way into that play zone physiology sometimes. You know? 100%. So. Absolutely. I, I love that. Dr. Curlin, great stuff. Thanks for joining us. This was, this was fun. Was that supposed to be fun? Is an interview fun? This was definitely fun for me. So I, I'm so appreciate you having me on. There's no doubt this is definitely an area I've struggled repeatedly over the years. Very helpful information, Dr. Curland. If you have questions about pursuing your MBHWSC-approved coach certification, we have one more cohort kicking off in 2023, but that's it. If you'd like to learn more or talk through the details related to your current or future career plans, please reach out anytime. Results at CatalystCoaching360.com. We'll get some time set up to get your questions answered. And now... It's time to be a Catalyst. This is Catalyst Coaching 360's Dr. Brad Cooper. Make it a great rest of your week, and I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Catalyst 360 podcast, or maybe over on the YouTube coaching channel.